0: Well, good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. Put a smile on your face, open your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and if you have little ones through grade 4, you can be uh, dismiss them at this time, or you can follow them, if you will. Just follow the herd out to the foyer, and make sure you remember to pick them up at the end. I just want to remind you quickly, if you would, um, today is Acts 246, which means that right after this service is a planned fellowship, and we would love to have you here. So if you're a guest here today, and you didn't come prepared just come we've got plenty and it'd be a great time for us to get to meet you you to get to meet us break bread together we'd love to have you today right at one o'clock right after this service is completed first corinthians chapter 15 thank you to john for filling in for me last week as our family traveled for a few days over liberty's uh, spring break and lca spring break we took some time to go back to the creation museum uh, from the Answers in Genesis. That's our fifth trip there. They have continued to add to that museum. It's fantastic. Uh, the research and science that's put into it is is uh, second to none, and I would encourage you to take time with your family to go and visit that museum. We also were able to take in the Ark. It opened this year back in August. It's not been open for quite a year, and that's also by Answers in Genesis. And again, uh, the level of the, of the um, Uh, the presentation of the ark and the young earth and and the flood and all of that is just fantastic and really second to none you can't even imagine the scope if you are friends with me on facebook uh, check some of those pictures out there's a tour bus uh, similar to the one uh, the shuttle buses that liberty runs around campus with two doors one in the front one halfway down it's parked right at the corner of the of the stern of the uh of the ark and you'll get an idea of the scope of the true uh, size of the ark Uh, and so I would just encourage you guys to take some time to do that. Perhaps we'll do a church trip uh, to those two museums. very enriching and encouraging for you. We are currently studying Paul's letter to the Corinthian Church. We have been doing that for a number of years. God's plan for a healthy church is what we've called it, a study through the books of First and Second Corinthians. In particular, over, uh, since we've hit verse f- chapter 15, we've talked about the resurrection. And as we've moved into it, the resurrection authority and authority over death. And that's where we are today. And he has been carried along by the Holy Spirit in this section, really mapping out for the church the the origin, the progress, and the destination of death. That's really what Paul's talking about. Where did it come from? Uh, What has happened along the way? And where is death going? And that really is Paul's focus here as he wants to encourage the church and correct some of their misconceptions and misunderstandings about the resurrection. And really, the wonderful news is, because, and we've looked at that, by the way, as we've gone through, just as a quick review, the wonderful news is is that because of the bodily resurrection of Jesus, he has authority over all of that death. And that's really the case Paul is making here as he takes us through these passages. Look, if you would, in your copy of God's Word of 1 Corinthians 1520. 1520 tells us this. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. That authority extends over the lives of all who physically die, having believed in Jesus. And, as we're going to look at today, that authority extends also over all of those who physically die in disbelief. His resurrection gives him authority to judge, and we saw that in Ephesians. And so we'll see that now today, as we see exactly what's going to happen in these resurrections. Verses 20 through 22, look there, really give us a clear picture of that absolute authority. Verse 21 says this, For since by a man came death, By a man also came the resurrection of the dead, verse 22, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. So when we read the words, for since by man came death, really death is the continuing condition, that condition of death is the continuing condition of every human being born into this world apart from faith in Christ. Left in that condition, That means spiritual death. That happened when Adam sinned. It it is the case of everyone who is born. They are born spiritually dead, which is separation from the living God. It includes physical death, which is just a physical understanding for us of this curse that is on men. This this, this, uh, death sentence that's on men because of sin. Physical death just reinforces for us that that is indeed the case. Which is physical death is separation from the living. So, spiritual death, separation from the living God. Physical death, separation from the living. And then, eternal death, which is the eternal state of both of the previous things. Now, as Paul continues to map out for the church, he's shown the beginning of death, and that was Adam introduced sin into humanity. And from Adam on, every person inherited that sin nature and was dead to the living God. What happened along the way? It spread to all the descendants of Adam. And then what happens at the end is when Christ, in uncontested, irrevocable victory over death, raises everyone who has ever lived, and some for the resurrection of life, and some to the resurrection of death. So Paul kind of summarizes, if you will, early in this chapter, exactly what's going to happen. And we saw last time that he gives us the order in which those things will occur. Look at verse 23. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after that, those who are Christ's at his coming. Then, verse 24, comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. Verse 25, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Verse 26, the last enemy that will be abolished is death. And we're going to get to those passages here in just a minute. But Paul lets the church know how this is is all going to play out, because it isn't going to all happen at once. And I think that you understand that, and we looked uh, at that last time. Verse 23 says, but each in his own order. Now we saw that that noun really is a military term, That has to do with assigning to a division or determining a position or even a rank if it's applied to an individual as it is to Christ. It would have been used with a detachment of soldiers to bring them to order, which is why that word's used in the New American Standard. So, who's in first position? Paul says, and we've looked at this already, verse 20, Christ the first fruits. And we saw as a principle last time, Jesus is first in order, he's first in rank, and he is the first fruits of the resurrection of the dead. Now, those three words are important. He's first in order because this is a permanent resurrection that's in view here. Christ wasn't the first to be raised from the dead, and we understand that. So it isn't just talking about generally being raised from the dead. It's talking about permanent resurrection. And as we saw, that there are really two kinds of eternal resurrection, and Jesus has authority over all of these as first fruits. There's the first resurrection, and we looked at this last time, and I'm going through it slowly because I want you to absorb this. These are very important principles for you to understand. The first resurrection, that's the resurrection of the just, of the church, of the tribulation saints, and the Old Testament saints. And we looked at that last time. That's all first resurrection. They just get their bodies at different times. And then Jesus has authority, because he's first in order, over the second resurrection. That's the resurrection of the unjust. All who have died at any time, any era, who have denied God's provision of salvation, they will be given resurrected bodies as well, prepared for punishment forever. And there are no other choices between those two. And people fall into one category or the other. They are born into death, and, un, and if that's not changed, they will find that they are part of the second resurrection. Remember we said that little phrase, born once, die twice, born twice, die once. And that applies here, just kind of generally summing up what we're talking about. So that is first in order. Now Paul illustrates first in rank as it relates to the resurrection. In Ephesians 1, 18 through 22, and you can put that in the margin of your Bible. We looked at it last time. We won't look at it again. And there's though, we see that God demonstrates his power in raising Jesus. And by that resurrection, that's just one place among a number of places in the New Testament that we see that because of that resurrection, he gives Jesus the authority over everything. So Jesus is first in order in the permanent resurrection, and he is first in rank as it relates to resurrection. So he is in charge of all of that. And then, as we said, he is also firstfruits, which just really points us to the Levit- Leviticus 23 passage that talks about the first sheaf of the harvest, which was brought to the temple. It was the first part of the grain that was harvested, and instead of taking it and putting it in your barn, you were supposed to take it to the temple and present it to God as a thanksgiving offering. Jesus is that firstfruits. It was the beginning of the harvest. It consecrated the whole harvest. So first fruits was a sign or a symbol of the coming harvest, and as it is applied to Jesus then, and his resurrection, Jesus is the eternal resurrection, and all other eternal resurrections then follow Christ's. And so that's the idea Paul wants to get across as he uses that first fruits understanding. Jesus is the first part of the whole harvest of resurrection. So Jesus is first in order, He's first in rank, and He is first fruits. And as we saw, as we take in all that meaning that the Holy Spirit intended, we're speaking really of a permanent, physical, bodily resurrection. So look at verse 23 who's next in line, if we understand each in his own order. Look at verse 23 if you would. We'll back up here. Each in his own order. Look there in your Bible. Christ the firstfruits, we just looked at that. After that, those who are Christ's at his coming. So after Christ has been raised from the dead, and he has, then those who are Christ's at his coming can be raised. And we saw that uh, the physical resurrection of those who are Christ's can begin with Jesus's Return. And that's simply the word parousia. That's his presence. With Jesus' presence, his return to the earth, all this is going to begin. Each in his first order. So we see some time separation there, don't we? Christ is resurrected. He's the first fruits. He's gone to heaven. We live in the church age, this age of grace where people are coming to faith. There's going to come a time where his presence will be remade known to the earth. And that is the beginning of those who are Christ said is coming. That's that next step. Generally, that's referred to, as we just said, the first resurrection. So the resurrection of the just, that's the righteous, the justified, the resurrection of life, the church, the tribulation saints, the Old Testament saints. That's all first resurrection. And we looked at that in length, so we won't go through it again. So if you're behind on that and you want to grasp that a little bit better, check online, you can look at the archives and you can see that sermon, you can take some notes and put some notes in your Bible to help you catch up. But just in general, the scripture talks a lot about the resurrection. And we looked at a number of passages last time. It is the resurrection of the righteous. It's the resurrection of the dead. It's the resurrection of life. It's the better resurrection. These are all words that Scripture uses of this first resurrection. As Paul says, it is attaining to the resurrection of the dead. Instead of this second resurrection, Paul says, I'm going to attain to this first resurrection. And so, 1 Corinthians 15 23 says, Each in his own order, Christ the first fruits. So here's the order. First is whom? Christ. Okay, Jesus comes out of the grave as the first fruits, first in order. Uh, and so he has, we saw that last time, he has that authority. After that, those who are Christ at his coming. So Jesus begins this process then. We've just just in general labeled it taking back the world. This belongs to him. Uh, this was created by his word, and he's going to take it back. So Jesus, his presence be- is made known to the earth again. That still remains in our future. And he begins the process of taking the world back. So secondly, whom? That's the church. That's resurrected at the rapture. And we looked at that last time. Saints who have died during the church age, their bodies will be called up from the grave. Graves are going to open up. Their resurrected bodies will join them in heaven and replace that temporary heavenly body that they have now. Those of your loved ones who've, who've gone to sleep up until this point, they will be caught up out of the grave at that trumpet of Christ and raptured up to be with him. And then the saints who are alive and remain at that moment will be changed. Their body of death that Paul refers to in Romans chapter 7, this body we live in, this Unglorified body, the, not the true you. The true you is that as you are Christ's, but this unglorified body will be caught up, not before those who've died, but right afterwards and given a glorified physical body. So, first is Christ. Secondly, the church at the rapture. Thirdly, tribulation saints. Of course, the tribulation begins after the rapture of the church. If you've been with us for any length of time, you've seen us go through those passages. So, during the tribulation time, There's this judgment and a lot of people are going to die. But in the midst of all of that, God is getting the world's attention. And many millions will come to faith. And still many millions of those will die. And at the end of the tribulation, they will be raised. And the first part of this first resurrection, this first harvest of life, and the authority over death. So we've got Christ, and we've got the church raptured, then we have the tribulation saints, and then we saw last time, fourthly, the Old Testament saints, all part of the first resurrection. Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 is a key verse there, and you can copy that in your margin. And we looked at that last time. But this appears to occur at the end of the tribulation time. And so their graves will be empty. All those who had faith, they will, be, they will receive their resurrected bodies. And that appears to occur approximately at the same time the tribulation saints get theirs. So, each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. After that, those who are Christ's said is coming. Now, Let's move on to 1 Corinthians 15, 24-26, and we'll see this. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and all power. Verse 25, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Verse 26, the last enemy that will be abolished is death. Now you can just see Paul as he makes his way through this. Okay, This is just, just kind of falls off the vine, if you will. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits. After that, so again, a time stamp, these are going to follow in order with each other. It's not saying immediately after, and we understand that it isn't immediately after. But that's the order. After that, those who are Christ that is coming, then, see verse 24, then comes the end. Well, after Christ comes, after he's caught up the first resurrection, then the end's going to come. And what is the end? When he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father. Now, there's some conditions there before he can do that. Now, let's look at them. And that then is just that, means following this, okay? It's just an adverb. It doesn't necessarily mean immediately afterward. It just takes place in some unspecified time after the proceeding. And we saw that the first resurrection, we saw that same thing. It just indicates that this is what follows. And you can think of it this way. It's really a progression of events which is moving towards a conclusion. And this is the third in order from verse 23. See, the first is Christ. The second is those that are Christ-said is coming, and the third, so he's given an order, right? This is what he said he was going to do. He's going to talk about how this is going to happen, how this is going to unfold. The third is then, then comes the end, and he's going to give some, uh, a whole bunch of things that have to happen during this time. And verse 24 is going to build on some, if you will, contingencies. And many of these verbs are in the subjunctive, and I've told you before, that's the, that's the verb uh, that gives you a contingency. Something has to happen in order for this to happen. Now, that, that word, the end... So now in telos, that's the conclusion. So the idea of this is the goal. So then comes the goal. What is the goal? When he hands over the kingdom to God, to the God and Father. Why? Because that's who it belongs to anyway, right? And the temporary authority that's on the earth now is only temporary. A usurping authority that God has allowed to happen. But at this point, we're coming to the end. So there's this sense of purpose about it. And Jesus went to the cross and he rose from the grave to finally come to this end, see? To turn everything back over like it's supposed to be. So is a sense of purpose. It really points to the consummation of all things. The climax to which everything is destined to lead up to. And so throughout this whole chapter, see, the discussion is concerned with the resurrection. And that resurrection has impact on unbelievers and the fate of the wicked. And that's what we're going to look at now. This is a third in order. So Paul indicated, verse 23, first Christ, then believers at his coming, then still at his coming, the wicked. That's the final phase of this resurrection, the second resurrection, which we'll see in a moment. So, what is Jesus going to do in this third step? Well, look there, if you would. When he hands over, he's going to hand over the kingdom to the God and Father. That's just indefinite, hotan. As soon as, when is that, as soon as is a good way to think about it. As soon as he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, that's when the end's going to come. And in that, that idea, handover is present active subjunctive, paradido. Just means there's a contingency at work here. Literally, and you, we just kind of build it here, okay, so you can kind of get the sense of it. The end's going to come, so it's going to say, when he hands over the kingdom to God and Father. So, literally, the end will come when Jesus hands over the kingdom to God. Now, there's a great illustration of that in Matthew chapter nine, uh, 6, verses 9 and 10. And I want you to see this, okay, uh, because the word kingdom is important here. Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray, and he's going to use the same word, and you'll get the sense of it right now. Pray, then, in this way, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now, we've gone through that, and that's important, that's important uh, things to incorporate into your prayer. What are we saying? Well, we recognize where the Lord reigns, we recognize that his name is holy, and then we, now mark this, here's what he says, verse 10, your kingdom come, okay, that's something we recognize. So, catch this. The whole realm already belongs to God. So, we're not talking about moving to a new realm, are we? We're not talking about about taking over the realm or making new the realm. We're talking about something else besides that, okay? The whole realm already belongs to God, right? He has allowed it to be temporarily ruled by Satan and the demons and wicked men. So, Jesus clarifies what that means. Your kingdom come means your what? What's the next part? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that goes right with what we're just learning from Paul, right? Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to to the God and Father. Right now it's temporarily being ruled by wicked men and demons and Satan. But not for long. So when you pray, and you pray in this way, you're praying along with the will and the plan of the Lord. That's precisely what he's planning on doing. And Christ, when he comes in his parousia, will first Take away the first resurrection, and then then the end's going to come, correct? And when the end comes, part of that end is what? His kingdom, his dominion, his authority, his rule is going to be established back on earth again. So the kingdom to the God and Father, as we've seen, everything about this time period is about taking back the world and everything that impacts the world. So this use of the word kingdom seems to refer to the rule of the kingdom. Okay, He already owns all of this, it's just temporarily under false authority. Okay, and I love C.S. Lewis at the end of his book, and, and it was remi- I was reminded of this because my youngest son just got through reading The Last Battle again when he says, uh, peace child, all names will be given to the proper people in due time or something like that. See, right now there's names for people on earth that don't really belong to them. Authorities and rulers and powers, they don't really own those names. Those are temporary rulers and authorities and powers. The true ruler, authority and power is currently allowing it to be ruled by someone else. But now, when Jesus comes, this third step, see, He's going to hand over the kingdom to the God and Father. So He's going to give it back to the person who really rules it and has authority over it to begin with. So the kingdom is going to refer to the rule of the the kingdom. Then refers to the rule of the kingdom. So when Jesus comes, He will at last exercise full and complete authority over all things, see, and all people, because Jesus isn't going to hand over the rule of the kingdom until the realm is in order, okay, he's not just, okay, here it is, it's a huge mess, and a whole bunch of people think they're people that they aren't, and these guys are ruling, and they shouldn't be, but here it is, so Jesus is, because of his resurrection, has the authority to do this, so part of the impact of the resurrection, this all plays back on the false understanding the Corinthians had, that there is no resurrection of men, and you know, Paul says, listen, if there's no resurrection of men, there's no resurrection of Christ, so that has impact on all this. But indeed, Christ has been raised the first fruits. And because he's been raised, a whole bunch of other things are going to happen. So it says this, when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished, so here's this first contingency, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and all power. So let's put that all together. Resurrection principle, then number 10, which you can see right here. The end will come when Jesus hands over the kingdom to God and he'll hand the rule of the kingdom over to God when he's cleaned house. So he's going to straighten everything out. And because he was resurrected from the dead, he has the authority to do it. And when he comes back, that's precisely what he's going to do after the first resurrection. So there's the order. First resurrection, that's the rapture. And then he's going to fix all of this. Now that word abolished is, is idea. I think the best idea to, to represent that word abolished is to render powerless. Jesus is going to render some things powerless. So what's he going to render powerless? Well, three important nouns all rule, okay, that is the word RK, and that's those that are considered in first place. When you see the word rule, you, you translate sometimes principality, it simply means those who are considered most important. So they're not gonna be most important anymore. That, uh, and the current, uh, now in the current world, these are the most important people, so this is not a lame duck title, okay? We're talking about people who in the current system are the most important. So you think about the people that you are aware of that are in this world who are, would be considered by the world the most important. They are not going to be in that position after Christ returns. Okay? So though he's going he's to abolish, he's going to render powerless everybody who's most important. And the second one, all authority, exousian. Those that have the power to judge, that's that word. Literally it refers to the freedom of choice. That's how it's used, the freedom of choice. But here... It's those that have the right to choose for others. So those who rule over others. Those who have authority over others. Sometimes it's translated rule. Sometimes it's translated power. But in in essence it is those who have the power to judge someone else. They make the decisions, and whatever decisions they make, that's what happens. Okay, so Jesus is going to render powerless all rule. He's going to render powerless all authority. And then this one, power. It is the word dunament. It is... um, this is what it takes to have the other two. It refers to the power of armies, it refers to the power of weapons, it can refer to the power of riches and wealth to accomplish things or powers of numbers so the majority, perhaps satanic influence behind it, so you have some power that's in the in the spirit world making it happen or the power that comes from force, that's the idea. So, all rule, all authority and all power wherever it got its wherever it generated its force, wherever it's coming from. So, resurrection principle number 11. Because of the resurrection, Jesus has the authority to put things right on earth. He has authority over all these things. Very simple principle. Regardless of whose authority, who rules, who makes the rules, at Christ's parousia, he's the first fruits. Then you have the the resurrection, first resurrection, and then he begins to he's going to give the kingdom back to God. And, but in order to do that, he's got to set things straight. And this is that process of setting things straight because of the resurrection. Now, all these things, um, and this is not an exhaustive list here by Paul, but it is comprehensive enough to put everyone on notice. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, just in general, all rule, all authority, all power is comprehensive enough to put everybody on notice. I mean, if your boss says, listen, we're gonna take a hard look at every department and anybody who's not doing their job, uh, they're gonna be out. I mean, he, didn't, he wasn't specific in departments. He you know, your boss didn't say it was going to be your department. He didn't say how many people in each department. He just said, listen, we're going to take a hard look at everything. We're going to look at production. We're going to look at all of this stuff. And then some people are going to be gone. So that's, I think that's the idea here. Everybody's on notice. These things are things that oppose God and his rule. That's just obvious. And they are on notice. They are part of the world system. This is the same system that's indicated by, by the mark of the beast in Revelation 13, 17. It is the same system that's the 666. It's man's system. All the authority, all the rule, satanic influence, all those things, that's this system. All put on notice. When Christ comes back, this third thing, this third in order, is going to be this. All rule, all authority, all power. Now, just to illustrate that, and, and we like to do that, let the Bible explain the Bible. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, give us a little bit more exhaustive list and I like this list and you've read this through because this is the list that has that is connected with the uh, the armor of God and you've read this and perhaps as a kid you had a VBS that was themed this way or you've made some something or your child has perhaps but Apostle Paul is addressing the armor that Christians need in this life and the reason why they need it follows so uh, the Holy Spirit provides this armor it is available to the Christian and he gives really a broader picture of the power structure at work on the earth, when he says, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, and you can put this in your margin if it's helpful for you, Paul says this, he says, for our struggle is, is not against flesh and blood. So all the struggle that you're having is not just because that person is not very nice, okay? There's a whole other thing going on here. I mean, it certainly is that person, and you have some responsibilities uh, without any rights of your own to deal with them and forgiveness and all that kind of thing. But our struggle, he says, is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, so that's the word we saw already, that's arche, so that's, that's those that are considered in first place. And against powers, that's the word we saw again, exousias. We, it, Paul used all authority in 1 Corinthians 15, but it is the same word. It's the term Paul used there. So it's those that have the power to judge, those that have the freedom of choice and choose for others and make it stick. And then he uses this word. He says against the world forces. And that is a compound noun. Cosmo kretoris, And... Cosmo is the world, and Kratoris is dominion. And so the idea there is that those that have dominion in the world, those who have authority in the world, world leaders, court systems, governments, all those kinds of things, okay? We wrestle against those kinds of things. So, and then he adds this, of this darkness, which just really refers to the ungodliness and the immorality and the, and the consequent misery that is the result of these world forces. These world forces are wicked, and they create all kinds of of ungodliness and immorality and and all kinds of misery because they are in charge. So when you look around, it shouldn't surprise us that the world is in the condition that it's in, and suffering shouldn't be some conflict for us to wonder why we could have a loving God in conflict on the earth. We have a loving God, but conflict on the earth because temporarily the world is under the curse of sin, and all those things are ripples out from Adam's decision to rebel. And everything comes from that. And every human being that's ever been born has that sin nature. And all of that is free on the earth to roam temporarily. And God in his goodness has sent Christ to give hope. And so that is the good news, isn't it? And so when we see the world, we recognize it's full of suffering. We understand why it is. Because these things are at work. But not forever. Because this third order of things, God's gonna hang the, Christ is going to hand the kingdom back over to God. In order to do that, he's going to bring all this under authority. Okay? He's going to render it powerless. So you've got, you got uh, world forces of this darkness and spiritual forces of wickedness. And that's a great adjective. That is um, new in, in this context, it's referring to a higher than man but inferior to God. So demons at work, spiritual forces on a plane that we currently don't see with our eyes or at work in all the workings of the world. Spiritual forces of wickedness, depravity, iniquity, wickedness, malice, evil purposes, desires, all uh, making this happen, spiritual forces. And even in, he says, heavenly places. And so, again, you've got this idea that in the expanse of the sky, that's, that's the idea of this uh, urani- ur- uranios, uranios. Um, the expanse of the sky, there's there's stuff going on here. See, the clouds where the storms gather. So it lends itself to understand there are demons that have charge over world systems. There are demons that are in charge of this immediate atmosphere that's around us. And they are making mischief. And they're creating wickedness and malice and evil purpose and all that desire. All that's at work, see. These things are all in charge. This is the dynamic of the world currently. So, there's depravity. There's wicked accusations also occurring in heaven by Satan himself. We see that in... And Joe, so all that's going on, see. So, first two, power to judge, first place, those are the same as First Corinthians 15. World forces, spiritual forces, those are ones that were added by Paul in Ephesians to help us understand. These are pretty, formidable forces and powers and authorities that work in this world. You don't have any authority over all of them. You have armor, and you have the Lord's protection, and you have a job to do, which is to give out the gospel, Okay. We don't speak against the darkness. We don't tell the darkness to get down. We don't do, That's not our job. Our job is to put on the armor and take the word of God and give out the gospel. And the gospel is Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That's the good news. That resurrection has delivered men from this tyranny. And Christ is going to come later, and he's going to subdue all of this. He has the authority because he was resurrected, see? So, Jesus is going to hand over the kingdom to God, but only after he's abolished or rendered powerless all these temporary authorities. They have dominated the earth since sin entered the world. So through Christ's death and resurrection, he was granted all authority. And beginning with his catching away of the church, he will render powerless all the wicked forces at work in the world right after one another. And he will even temporarily use them, as we saw as we studied Revelation, during the tribulation period, to exercise God's wrath and to bring men to salvation. He's going to use demons to do what he wants to do. He's going to bring harshness on the world to bring people to salvation. So he can do whatever he wants, right? Because they only have temporary authority. They're spirits, if you will, with lines drawn around them. Yes, it was a coup that God allowed and he allowed it to exist for a certain time and at this point, it's all done. It's all being wrapped up and everybody's given back the correct names and the correct authorities are put in place, see? Ultimately, they will be abolished, and the rightful ruler will be reestablished at his dominion. Look at verse 24. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and all power. So Jesus is going to deliver up this authority, this rule, to his Father. All that opposes God is going to be subdued. And as we saw just a moment ago, Paul speaks of Christ as destroying all dominion, all authority, all power. These three words are probably not meant to define with precision the kinds of authority, so we added Ephesians 6 to kind of help us understand all of that. But really here, Paul's emphasis seems to be that at the end of his reestablished rule, here's the thing, okay? There will be no governing power of any kind that will not be completely subservient to Christ. His authority in the resurrection gives him authority over all these things. And that word abolished, as we say, cartargeo just basically means to render null and void, to render without power, to make inoperative. Now, Paul doesn't go into the battles. He doesn't go into the judgments here in 1 Corinthians 15 that we understand what will occur in Revelation. He doesn't talk about rulers being dethroned. He doesn't talk about anybody being thrown into prison, and we understand that that is going to be the case. Paul just says, this is what is going to happen. Very simple. All rule other than that of Christ is rendered completely inoperative. 2 Corinthians or 2 Thessalonians 1.7 is a is a great illustration. I'll give you a few here as we have time. There's much more here, I think, than we have time for. So I'm gonna fill in the gaps as best I can. Second Thessalonians 1.7 speaks of this tribulation time as well as when we see Jesus taking out vengeance on rulers and powers and authorities, which have caused all the suffering of believers throughout the ages. Paul says Jesus is going to come, and verse 7 he says, and give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire. Verse 8, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Now, here's the question. Is that the church? Does that sound like a definition that describes believers? No. Why? Because the beginning of the first resurrection has already taken place. And so he can be revealed with his angels. And he can pour out bold judgments on the earth. Why? Because the people who remain at that point are those who do not obey the gospel and do not know God. You see? So it makes sense, doesn't it? The beginning of the first resurrection has already occurred. That's the rapture. This is the time of wrath. See, 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. He says this. For God hasn't destined us for wrath. Who's he talking about? When Paul says us, he's talking about us, okay? And the church, okay? That, you get included in that us. He hasn't destined us for wrath. Will some see wrath? Yes, if they're part of that group that does not know God and does not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. But if they're not in that group, will they see wrath? Not if God hasn't destined you for wrath, you won't, will you? God hasn't destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. First, in who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we'll live together with him. So during that tribulation time, the church is caught away. So 2 Thessalonians 1, 9, see, those that don't know God, those that don't obey the gospel, these, he said, verse 9, will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. In other words, you came to faith. You'll get to be part of those who marvel at this whole reestablishing of the authority that truly belongs on the earth, which is that of the Lord himself. So unbelievers who die at this time will be held in hell. They'll be waiting the second resurrection, see? Now, Look back with me, 1 Corinthians 15, 25. Paul's carried along by the Holy Spirit to say it this way. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. So resurrection principle number 12, here it is. Christ's reign to subdue his enemies begins at the rapture and continues to the end of his millennial reign. So there's some time there, isn't there? There's a seven-year tribulation, and there's a thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. And during that time, all those enemies will be put under his feet. All rule, all authority, all power, all spiritual forces of wickedness in high places, all world rulers, all those things bringing, being brought under authority. See? And so we can look at other places in Revelation, we can see what happens during these times, who gets thrown in the pit, and all those kinds of things. And we'll look at that if we have time at the end of our time today. So he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. And so we see, at his parousia, which is the beginning of that, is the rapture. That is the beginning of that time period, okay? Now, there's a a real future reality here, illustrated with a passage from Revelation 20, verse 7. And we're going to look at that. I'd like you to turn there, if you would. And we'll just finish our time out. However much time we have left, we'll just finish it here. Because part of this second resurrection, which we've talked about previously, is is part of putting all of his enemies under his feet. See, part of those who are enemies of God are those who do not obey God, those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are part of those who are his enemies. Because while we were still sinners, while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. See, So we understand that we fall into that, even though we we might consider ourselves God's enemies. But if you haven't come to faith in Christ, as Jim explained to you earlier today, if you have not submitted yourself confessed your sins and repented and asked God to, to save you, that you remain in this position of spiritual death, you're headed for physical death and eternal death. So that is this, this is this time period we're talking about. So part of those who don't obey the gospel, those who, who do not know God, they are part of those who are considered God's enemies as much as world rulers, authorities, powers, and spiritual forces of wickedness in high places. They're all part, okay? Hell wasn't created for people, but people will be there because they are part of that group who do not know God do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So look at Revelation chapter 20, and I'll read really verses 7 through 10, no, verses 6 through 14. Let's just read the whole thing. We'll get as far as we can, okay? Now, we read this last time we were together a couple weeks ago, so you'll remember this, verse 6. Blessed and holy, see where we are? Revelation chapter 20, verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. And all God's people said, Amen. That's where you want to be, okay? And we just talked about who those were. Now, over those, the second death has no power. Of course it doesn't, because the second death is eternal death. And you don't have eternal death. You have eternal life through Christ. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So there's going to be some reigning done some authority given, and it's going, to be, it's going to be changed from spiritual forces of wickedness in high places, it's going to be changed from authority and power and rulers that are wicked and all of that to those who are righteous. They will be the ones who will help Christ rule. Now look at verse 7. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. Verse 9, and they will come up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded And surrounded the camp of the saints and of the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. Verse 10, so there's some who come to faith right here at, this, at the end of the tribulation period. They'll be there as part of those who and part of the Jewish people who are redeemed, and there's going to be this battle. Now verse 10, not much of a battle. Verse 10, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And then verse 11, then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. Verse 12, and I saw the dead, the great and small standing before the throne and the books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. Verse 13, And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. Verse 14, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Verse 15, And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now don't worry, we're going to go back and look at those verses, okay? But I think you get the sense of it. We've already talked about this, so you get the sense of what's going on, especially with the names. Second death, eternal death, this judgment, and who's being raised now, remember? First resurrection is all the righteous. The Second resurrection is all the unrighteous. And that's who's being raised now. Okay, So, Christ has authority over all of these things. He's the first fruit of the resurrection. So, he has authority over all resurrection, and he's exercising it now. Okay? So, That passage really is the wrapping up of the temporary rule and authority and power that has kept the world in misery and darkness. And as we look around us, as we read that passage and we look around us and see what's going on in the world, if you're paying attention to what's going on in the Middle East and what's just going on in our own governments and the governments around us, these days are really at hand for us in a very real sense. I don't think that you can look at the world and see where Israel is and that she's back in the land and not come to the conclusion that these days are the days that are on us. But more than any other generation that came before, we live in these days in a very real sense. And the days of the wrath of the Lord seem to be practically upon us. If we look at the history of the world and all the places God has judged, you can't look at the history of the world and see the places God has physically judged and look at what goes on in the world today and not think that God is going to be silent much longer. Okay, So this is really, I think, a very practical way to look at this. And, and, and you have nothing to fear if you, if you know Christ as your Savior. These are just the ways the Lord is explaining to us Paul sums it up in 1 Corinthians 15. John makes it very clear what's going to happen in in Revelation chapter 19 and chapter 20. So, the days of the wrath are are practically upon us, and so the rapture of the church could be very near. So all this is very relevant and very exciting stuff, see? Now, we read verses 1 through 6 last time, from which come really on the heels of the judgment of the sheep and the goats from Matthew 25 and 31. That's where they're again redeemed from the tribulation are separated out from those who came to faith during the tribulation and the redeemed from that time enter into the millennial reign of Christ okay so tribulation's all over those some are redeemed some are not at the end and they're still alive and the Lord will have the sheep and goat judgment that you can read about in Matthew 25 on your own and he's going to separate out the sheep and goats okay and the the ones who are redeemed are going to enter alive into the millennial reign of Christ, and the unredeemed are going to be cast into hell, and they're going to await the great white throne judgment that we just read about. And they will join all the other unredeemed who are waiting there as well. And that's all going to occur at the end of the millennial reign of Christ. And then John picks up right there, and he says this in verse 7. He says, look back there in your copy of God's word. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. So the thousand-year reign has occurred, All those who were alive and redeemed at the end of the tribulation period entered into it alive and lived on the earth. So, thousand years is complete. Satan's released from his prison. A very large number of people dwelling on the earth by now. Isaiah tells us that people will live a much longer time. Those who came into the millennial kingdom were born again, but their descendants will need to come to faith, and obviously some of them will not. Okay, during that thousand-year reign of Christ, Christ will be reigning in Jerusalem. They'll still need to submit to him. Obviously some won't. Satan is loose for a little while. He's been bound this whole time. He's going to come out. Verse 8 says, To deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for war, the number of them is like the sand of the seashore. So there's a large number of people. And if you were with us in our study of Revelation, I gave you that formula that showed how populations increase depending on length of life and all of that. So you can see that the population would be greatly increased in a thousand years depending on who's coming in after the tribulation period. And so... A parallel is drawn here from the imagery that the Jewish people would know and those who have read Ezekiel 38 and 39 and 1 Chronicles and Numbers and Deuteronomy. It refers to a leader of his people, Gog and Magog, who lived around the Caspian Sea, came to refer to the general, in general to the enemies of Israel. So in general, John just talks about it like this. Listen, the enemies of Israel are all going to gather together with Satan leading them. And they're going to make war. So among the nations living in this wonderful time, there are those who have been born to the ones who have come into this millennial kingdom alive and some will rebel, and so Satan is loosed, and he comes to deceive that, those nations, and some are able to be deceived, so it obviously shows you that in this thousand-year reign of Christ, people will have to come and submit to Christ himself, it won't be automatic, and John sees this settling of all accounts, and as the thrones come into view, and you know, the throne of God is there, and I think, I think a good way to think about this is you read that passage, and maybe you've read it many times. And the thrones are set up. I I think the best way to think about this is the throne is already set up. You understand? That throne in heaven has never left its place. You see? It's always been there. Temporarily, we've been allowed to delude ourselves to think that there isn't a throne there and never will we ever answer to a high authority. But that's never been the case. It's only been a temporary authority on earth by wicked men and demons and Satan. So what I like to think of this passage is is that the veil that's kept us from seeing the reality of the universe all along, which is Christ, with God sitting on his throne, with Christ next to him, is pulled away, and now everybody sees it. You see? That's always been the reality. That's never changed, beloved. God has always ruled with authority. You just haven't been able to see it right now. And And before you were saved, perhaps you forgot that that's how it is. He made the world, and he makes the rules. And now... He's going to pull it all back and pull out all the books and see how all those who didn't obey Christ nor the gospel obeyed those rules. So everybody's going to get their wish. I'm just going to stand on my own two feet and I'm going to make an account for myself. Well, okay, this is your chance. If you're, un- if you're not born again, you're going to get this shot. So that thrones, that, uh, that, that uh, if you will, that veil is pulled away and the throne of God appears. And we know from our passage in 1 Corinthians and Romans 8 and Ephesians that because of the resurrection... Jesus is going to do the judging, okay? So here's the throne, and Jesus is sitting on it. Romans chapter 8 says, the one who died is also the one who judges, right? So he's the one who gets to judge. And then verse 11 says, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I think scripture lends itself right here to a decreation and an unmaking, if you will, of everything that's been made. And if you think about it, you know, God spoke a word and made all that was made. He speaks another word and the earth and sky disappear. So uh, the word is actually taken flight. They take flight and there's no place for them to land. So that's the sense of the, of the word fled away. And I think the reinforcing comment is no place was found for them, so it's gone for good. Now, if you think about all the rulers and authorities that have been here and where they had authority, we just said that, that wicked, uh, wicked men and wicked uh, demons have authority in the, in the, in the uh, universe that directly surrounds us, our atmosphere, perhaps our solar system. It makes sense then, everything that was defiled by the usurpers is going to be undone, right? Does that make sense? I mean, if they, they ruled here, so all that stuff is gonna be washed away and a new one's gonna made, be made. No memory of it anymore. Now, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10 talks about how that's gonna happen. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements Stoichion, that's the base of things, the orderly arrangement of everything, the elements, will be destroyed in it with an intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Because you know this is going to happen. In other words, don't amass all your, everything that's important to you on the earth, because that's all going to go, okay? Verse 12, Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat, but according to his promise, we're looking for a new heaven and new earth in which righteousness dwells. So there's a lot of passages that talk about that unmaking and remaking that we won't look at for today. But uh, I'll say the, a few of them here. You can copy down some of them if you're interested in knowing how that's all going to happen here at this point. Matthew 24, 35. Isaiah 66, 15. Daniel 7, 9. Micah 1:4, Malachi 4:1. But 1 Thessalonians 1:10 says Jesus delivers us from the wrath that come. The earth and the heavens that were defiled by the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places from Ephesians 6. Anything tainted by wickedness is purged. The Uranus, the vault of the sky that we looked at, the atmosphere around us, and, and that makes sense that we know the nature of God's holiness, uh, what it took to purify the priests and the temple and all that. It shouldn't surprise us that he's going to purify all that that, uh, that uh, wicked men and wicked uh, angels had charge of. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 12, it says this. I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. So, here it is. What is this? This is the second resurrection. This is the one that you avoid when you come to faith. When you, give your, when you give your life to Christ, when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you are now avoiding the second resurrection because you're part of the first resurrection. So, all the unbelieving dead are raised in this second resurrection. And Jesus is putting all his enemies under his feet. See, And John says he sees the only ones who still haven't been dealt with. And beloved, this is that second resurrection, the judgment for which the gospel was sent. This is the one that you were able to avoid because you you heard the gospel, because you listened to what Jim said this morning in John 3.16. Because Jesus came the first time not to condemn the world, but to save the world through him, see? But now he's coming as its judge, and this is the second resurrection. He substituted himself on the cross for all who believe to avoid this very moment. You get that? Every unbeliever who's ever lived from all time. This is the resurrection of the damned or the resurrection of the unjust or the second resurrection. The Bible talks about it in all those terms. It's described dozens of times in the Scripture. We've, seen, we've been carefully warned of its coming and we'll look at just a few of them because this is the key to everything, beloved. This is why the Gospel is appealing. Okay? Truly I say to you, It'll be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. This is Jesus' words as he came and did uh, his miracles in the city and taught and gave the gospel and they rejected it. Matthew eleven twenty two Nevertheless, I say to you, it would be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you, and you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You'll descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained until this day. In other words, Sodom would not have been destroyed. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment, that's this day we're talking about, than for you. Matthew 12, 36. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an account for it in the day of judgment. All the unredeemed, everything they've ever said. Not you, right? Because your sins are dealt with at the cross. Every sin you've ever committed everyone you will ever commit. Jesus' power on the cross to forgive sin, and you're receiving of that payment, forgave you of it. So who's it talking about? That's one of the books that's going to be open. Every careless word, everything that was said. Matthew 12, 41. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Those will stand up and say, why didn't you listen? John 12, 48. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him in the last day. Everything that's said, beloved, will occur. All that's written down about how the judgment will occur will happen, see. Acts 17, 31. Because he's fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he's appointed, having furnished proof to all men, by raising him from the dead. Because Jesus came out of the grave, it fixed the day of judgment that we're looking at in Revelation chapter 20, you see? Romans chapter 2, verse 5. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you're storing up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. And there's a whole bunch more, and I'm going to go through them, and I'm not going to read them because we're out of time. Listen. Beloved, this is a reality. If anything in your life is a reality, this for sure is a reality for the future, set already according to Acts because of the resurrection of Jesus. Okay? God is always fair. He always looks at the evidence, every word that was said. You need to fast forward that, uh, John. Click that on so it can move forward. Or whoever's, met, uh, I'm sorry, Grant, if you would, thank you. God's always fair. Revelation twelve twelve. The books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged from the things that were written in the book according to their deeds. It's the second resurrection. Going to be judged according to their deeds. We've seen in Romans. Deeds provide the foundation for judgment, don't they? Because if you don't rely on Christ's work on the cross, then it's only your deeds. That's what, it's gonna, that's what God's going to use. Deeds show what's in the heart. And these books are the books that have recorded everything, every thought, every word we just saw a second ago, every action, every motive. God is everywhere at all time. He's omnipresent. God knows everything. He's omniscient. It's men and women that forget. And Jesus will be able to judge in righteousness and true judgment because of these infallible recordings of everything that's occurred. And verse 13 of Revelation 20 says this. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their, what? Deeds. Every place where the dead have been kept Along with every body that has perished anywhere at any time, they'll be put back together, given a body that will last for eternity in torment. But the first thing that body will do with that cognizant mind that understands what's going on is they will stand in this second resurrection. And it's repeated here again and again. Each man is judged according to his deeds. Verse 14. Then death and Hades, so death. Physical and a confirmation of their spiritual condition, spiritual death, which is the condition of everyone who's ever been born apart from Christ, and eternal death, which is about to occur. See? Then death and Hades. So they're all done with all this judgment, then death and Hades, and all that that goes along with it. Spiritual death, eternal death, all the results of the fall. Hades, which was their place of torment for their spiritual bodies, as heaven was the place of enjoyment for the believer. So it's speaking of those who were not part of the first resurrection, see, and their location. Death and Hades. Everywhere that the, the unredeemed were held. And the place that was created for them are thrown into the lake of fire. Here it is, beloved. What's it say? This is the second death. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 26 says, the last enemy that will be abolished is what? Death. The last enemy that's going to be rendered inoperative is death. We come to the close of the second resurrection. We come to the close of the second death. And Hades, which was that holding place for all of those who rejected Christ, all who did not obey the gospel, all who rejected God as provision in the Old Testament, all of those. They're all be judged, and all of that is wrapped up. And what is it, what they do with it? Second death, a lake of fire. The last enemy Paul says, he just kind of sums it up. Christ is going to put all the enemies of God under his feet. He's going to render them inoperative. And the last enemy that's abolished is death. Where did death start? It started with Adam's rebellion. What happened along the way? It spread to all men. Christ came and intervened and took authority over death. And then he's going to come back and exercise that authority. And he's going to take away the first resurrection. And then he's going to put all the enemies under his feet. And he's going to take the second resurrection. And he's going to put all of them in the lake of fire. Listen, this is all in order. Paul just sums it up. Revelation gives us some very specific detail, and so does 1 Thessalonians and Second Thessalonians. But here Paul just sums it up. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. The last enemy of God is death. The death principle that goes together with the sin principle has been dealt with. See, The resurrection gives Jesus the authority over death, and all sinners of every era and every spiritual plane are all together. They've joined the false prophet. They've joined the Antichrist and Satan and all the demons and the enemies of God and the final enemy, death, and they're all there forever. You see? Verse 15 Revelation 20. It's a very clear statement. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. A very simple statement. Again, there are only two categories of people. How do you know that your name's in the book of life? Corinthians 15, 24, then comes the end. He hands over the kingdom of God to the Father. See, all that's occurred. See, Jesus start, Jesus, uh, Paul starts with that. He says, and then comes the end when he hands the kingdom over to the God and Father. So what's got to happen? All these contingencies. When it's all done, that's the end. See, we entered the internal state. And that's precisely what happens next according to Revelation twenty one eleven. Look there in your copy of God's Word. Revelation 21, 11. I'll just read it. Then... Okay, after what? After all the enemies of God have been rendered in of all the second resurrection has occurred, after those who all have been punished and the second death has occurred, then I saw a new heaven. After, after all that's been defiled by the uh, spiritual forces of wickedness in high places, all the wicked men who ruled, all that's been all purged, all defiled, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away. We just read about how that happened. And there was no longer any sea. And I saw, verse 2, the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. He has reestablished his authority, hasn't he? Over all the earth and all his creation. And he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them, verse 4, and he will wipe every tear from their eye. That's when it happens, beloved. You know, if, if you die tomorrow and you're, you're spiritually with the Lord in heaven with your temporary body, you'll still have tears. Tears don't get wiped away till here. I guarantee you, you're going to look down and see your loved ones, and you're going to cry. And you're going to beseech the Lord to help them. Okay, So here's where the tears get wiped away. Every tear from their eye, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning, no crying or pain. The first things have all passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful. And true. And if the Lord says, right, for these things are faithful and true, beloved, you better believe they're ex- going to happen exactly like he said they will. And next week we'll look at, Lord willing, verses 26 to 28 and see the wonderful reality from Paul's teaching to the believers in Corinth. But a very simple statement, beloved. Okay? Again, only two g- categories of people. How do you make sure your name's in the book of life? Because all this stuff is going to occur, okay? It is as sure as anything in your life you believe is absolutely certain, okay? Christ went to the cross. And he paid your penalty so you can avoid all of that. You'll never see the second death. You'll never see eternal death. You'll see eternal life because of what Christ has done. Will you bow with me and, and you'll have a chance to give yourself, give your heart to Christ right now. Why did I go through all that? Well, write these words, for they are faithful and true. At the beginning of Revelation, it says, Blessed is he who sees, hears, and does the words in this book. Paul summarizes those things in 1 Corinthians 15. We would be very amiss to not take in the order Christ putting all God's enemies under his feet, because, beloved, that will, that will include millions and millions of people who have stubbornly rejected the gospel and rejected the provision of Christ. But you don't have to be in that group. Scripture says, Confess with your mouth, Jesus as Lord. Believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, and you will be saved. Saved from what? Well, <laughs> every horror we just got through talking about. The second resurrection, the second death. In a more, maybe probably closer to home, saved from many mistakes that bring sorrow, saved from following foolish, wicked men, saved from being deceived by Satan and those who rule here, saved from being disheartened by the way the world is, saved from being. Uh, foolishly fooled that because they're suffering, there must not be a good and gracious God, save from a lot of stuff, but save mostly, and I think primarily, from the second death and the second resurrection. Confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead. Call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. Come to him. Admit that you are who he says you are. You have sinned. You've fallen short, Scripture says, of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. Listen, you take a look at yourself, and it's only you, and not you justifying yourself to someone else. You don't even live up to your own standards, let alone the ones God has set. And yet, Christ came not to judge you, and I'm not judging you. I'm just saying, this stands in the future, but Christ has paid your penalty, and you can come to him. Confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead right where you sit. Tell him that he is who he says he is, he's done what he said he'd done, and you have done all the things that the scripture says you have done, and that you're sorry for them. And God always keeps his promises. He sent Christ to prove that he's going to keep his promises, and he raised Christ to show that the penalty was sufficient for your sin. No matter what you've done, you'll be forgiven. And you'll walk, scripture says, in newness of life. And it'd be our joy to help you on that path and to disciple you and help you come into really the place God had planned for you all along. Be our joy. Lord, we thank you today for our time in the Word, for even a little bit of extra time that we were able to spend just to kind of put all these pieces together. So, Father, I pray by your Holy Spirit to give our mind understanding. Help us to be able to parse this out, understand how it all fits together, where our part is. Uh, we we have a role to play. We've given a, we've been given a commission to to follow and I pray that as believers we'll be doing that as we walk out of these doors today from our fellowship uh, later that we know that the mission field is out there and that we'll have opportunity help us not to miss it count us worthy to uh, proclaim your name and to even even be ridiculed because of the gospel for the servants are not greater than the master thank you for Jesus thank you for his provision thank you for your love for us father And thank you for all those today who heard the gospel again and had the opportunity to respond. And for those who did, give you praise. I know angels celebrate and you know all these things and in this whole big plan, you know how it'll all work. But Lord, help us to be found faithful. We give you praise today and all God's people said, amen.